Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. Today we continue our series on Asia and the environment by looking at the country that has the most impact on climate, not just in Asia, but the entire world. China operates on a scale that outclasses every other country, and as the world's biggest polluters, many would say that that's how it should be. But does this give China an advantage and a global platform in green leadership? And how are they making the most of it? Here to discuss this is Dr. Benjamin Habib, lecturer in politics and international relations at La Trobe University. He begins with a bit of historical context on China's relationship with the environment. I mean, if we look back uh, to the Mao Zedong era, Mao's China had a disastrous environmental record, as did most countries in the communist bloc during the Cold War. Uh, They had very explicit ideologies of man as the master of nature. You had a lot of outrageous ideological mobilization campaigns, which did do a lot of damage to the environment. And that legacy, you know, has continued on uh, in various forms. But then when you get to the the reform era around Deng Xiaoping and you get this rapid economic growth, that comes with different sets of uh, environmental pollution problems. So we look at the air pollution. You know, anyone that's been to China and experienced the air pollution in the big urban centres knows that that's, you know, a significant uh, environmental issue. Uh, There's water pollution problems. Uh, Soil infertility and desertification is an issue. So these problems are coalescing to the point where China has over 16 of the world's most polluted cities. Air pollution in particular has attracted the most popular attention. Urban air pollution is a significant health hazard. So anyone with a a pre-existing respiratory uh, illness like asthma, for example, they really suffer in that kind of environment. And, you know, as a a visitor to China, if you stay longer than a couple of weeks, it's highly likely that you're going to get a a respiratory infection just because of that terrible air quality. Is that still a contemporary problem, is it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you can imagine if you have to live in those conditions all the time, that's a significant drag on your quality of life. I've seen a figure of millions of people that die that can be attributed to the air pollution problems. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Uh, And this was all drawn to popular attention in the, the documentary movie Under the Dome, which came out a couple of years ago. But that put heat on the issue. Yeah. And it reached a level where the government had to act. So I think the air pollution issue in particular uh, was one that has, uh, you know, pushed the Chinese government to action on environmental issues. Mm. So I I get the impression that uh, under the directives of Chairman Mao and say in that era when you've got a burgeoning population of China, you get a real exploitative relationship with the environment. The environment is there to better the people, to better the country, to better Chairman Mao and his leadership. Do you get the impression that that balance has kind of changed or is there still an air of exploitation, but now we realise that a bad environment is also hurting China? This is one dimension where communism and capitalism have something in common and they both look (laughs) at the natural environment as a resource to be exploited. In communist ideology, that is very explicitly stated that man is the master of nature Mm. and man is going to reshape and conquer the natural world into something that'll glorify the revolution, uh, if you like. Uh, in capitalist systems, it, you know, it's not quite that explicit, but we see environmental harms externalised as a cost of doing business, and it's put aside as something not to be worried about. 
But once you get to a level of environmental harms that we're seeing in China now, you know, that's directly impacting on people's lives. It becomes a a political problem for the government. This is something that has to be addressed. How you start addressing that in a country as complex as China uh, is a really difficult political, economic and social uh, quandary. China pledged to the Paris Agreement in 2016, and they released their 13th five-year plan to address climate change. The key measures that they've got there are to limit energy through use of uh, green efficiencies and to reduce coal use and to build a carbon sink. So what are some of the elements that they're promising in this, and what are your thoughts on the plan? Yeah, that's a great question. The aim of the 13th five-year plan is to transition China to a green economy while maintaining medium to high economic growth rates. So this is a kind of have-your-cake-and-eat-it-too approach. That's important to bear in mind, and we might expand on that more in a minute. But specifically what we see in the 13th five-year plan is the most ambitious renewable energy targets that we've seen in a developed country particularly mandating increases in wind, solar and hydro capacity. China is now the world's leading producer of renewable energy sources. Uh, It's got the largest capacity in solar, wind and hydroelectric plants in the world. And it accounts for one third of installed wind power, one fifth of solar power. So this is a a renewable superpower, if you like. Mm. Uh, But we're also seeing in the five-year plan caps on coal consumption and an embargo on the construction of new coal-fired power plants. But I have to stress there's a caveat on that uh, embargo on new power plants. It's only been mandated in 13 provinces that already have an energy surplus, uh, and a further 15 provinces have had approvals of new coal-fired power plants delayed for a while. So essentially they're mandating that where it's already achievable. Yeah, yeah. They're going for the low-hanging fruit, uh, but that's significant because then that sends a signal about the future trajectory of the energy mix in the country to other investors. It sends a signal internationally. So if we look at carbon pricing, that's another important part of the five-year plan. That's designed to bring market transparency and promote low-carbon development of industry sectors that have a big carbon footprint. It's meant to compel these polluting industries and businesses to internalise the cost of greenhouse gas pollution into their cost of business calculations. Economic efficiency is a spin-off of this. So if a business can reduce its carbon footprint, often it can streamline its operations and save money in mm. the process. Different carbon pricing schemes have been on trial in seven different provinces and municipalities, Beijing, Shanghai, Tianjin, and Chongqing, uh, Shenzhen, Guangdong, and Hubei. Yeah. Uh, so these are the places where it's been trialed with a view to rolling out a national carbon price. Part of me is very surprised that this, maybe I shouldn't be, that they're setting these targets, but they're also making concerted efforts to, you know, while they might be modest, meet them. Mm. So a, a lot of countries will, will set these and be aspirational about it, but then abandon them as soon as they become inconvenient. China seems to push through the inconvenience. I have to pay homage here to my uh, honours student, Nick Proctor, who's done some great research on this stuff. But in his research, he's seen that the government tends to under-promise and over-deliver when it comes to these targets. So they don't set themselves a rod for their own backs by gunning for a target that's unachievable. They set themselves a target that's realistic and something that they can deliver on within a mandated time frame. And that's what we're seeing. Yeah, but who doesn't do that? That's true. But in <laughs> in this space, you know, we see all kinds of targets that countries have set 
often they don't meet them mm. or they devise crafty ways of pretending to meet them, you know, much like the Australian government has done mm. uh, consistently over the last 20 years. But the Chinese are actually meeting their targets because they are undertaking you know, significant changes to their energy mix. And that's where the, the meat and potatoes of uh, a lot of greenhouse gas reductions come. There's also the factor that China don't seem to have the luxury to do otherwise. Their environment, their pollution levels are in such a state. It's damaging their people now. It's, it's hurting their economy. They don't have an option other than to meet the targets that they set. Yeah, that's true. And you know, environmental degradation is an existential problem for the Chinese Communist Party uh, and the government. To understand why, let's rewind a little bit back to the Deng Xiaoping era in the early 1980s, economic reforms, and the character of the Chinese state starts to change. And the, the legitimacy of the Communist Party's claim on power no longer rests on communist ideology because this is essentially now a capitalist state. Mm. So their legitimacy rests on this grand social bargain. The government and the party promised to improve people's living standards uh, in exchange for the people's acquiescence to their continued one-party rule. Now, obviously, it's not stated explicitly like that, but this is you know, the grand bargain that you can see in place. Mm. Now, the environmental problems that we see in China now are beginning to directly impact on people's living standards uh, to the point where, yeah, as you said, people are dying from air pollution issues. Environmental degradation is a drag on the economy. It's contributing to natural disaster events, et cetera, et cetera. What we've seen is these environmental problems, particularly in urban centres, are contributing to you know, what are known as mass incidents. So there are a lot of protests related to local environmental issues where people are experiencing an environmental problem uh, in a very negative way. And now with the increased publicity, uh, particularly over the last five years, that environmental problems have been getting in the Chinese media... Mm. You know, this is something that the government needs to deal with. They have a direct existential reason for dealing with environmental problems and they look down the pipeline and see the kind of impacts that climate change uh, is going to bring to China and they see, right, our legitimacy to rule in this social bargain, mm. addressing environmental problems uh, is something that we really need to do as part of that social bargain. Partway through last year, China told the rest of the world that essentially they are not going to be taking any more of their recycling waste. So a country would pay China to take all its recycling, China would take it to their factories and recycle it and make the most of it. Last year, China said, you've got six months to find a way around this because we're going to be concentrating on our own waste. We need to do that. Can you tell me a bit more about that and what effect that's going to have around the world? This highlights a really important environmental justice question uh, and it's not just relevant to China, but this is a thing that India deals with and other developing countries deal with all the time. So the question is, is it just for developed countries to send their waste to less developed countries to deal with instead of taking responsibility for it ourselves? Mm. In effect, outsourcing our pollution to other places. Now, in the short term, if they say, no, we're going to stop doing this, clearly they have every right to say, no, we don't want to take your rubbish anymore. Mm -hmm. Now, in the short run, that has the potential to scuttle the global market in recycled materials, and that can impact on the municipal recycling schemes of the types that we have here in Australia. So the question for us is, okay, if we can't send it to China and there's, there's no longer a market to sell in our recyclables, what are we going to do with them? 
there's talk of stockpiling it here in Victoria. A few places are saying, you know, we're not going to be able to collect recycling for much longer. There was actually quite a lot of surprise that we don't deal with recycling ourselves. People just assume that they put their recyclables in the recycle bin, they go and get recycled. They didn't know that there was a selling it to China aspect. Yeah, and that's a problem that people don't know the full life cycle of the products that they consume. So what this could actually lead to is one, more awareness uh, of consumers in Australia about the full environmental impact of the stuff that they buy and use, but also innovations in waste management and circular production systems because we have to find a way to deal with the waste that we produce. And if we can't outsource it and make it someone else's problem, we have to learn how to deal with it. So in the medium term, I think that is actually a positive development because we have to take responsibility uh, for our waste. And from a, a global justice perspective, the Chinese are quite within their rights to say no. Do you think that they're actually going to solve this sort of problem? I think it's more so likely that they'll just find another country to foister it upon. Uh, that's equally as likely too. So, <laughs> you know, I was in India uh, recently and did a tour around a dump site in Udaipur. You know, our guides there were telling us about how there's a lot of the waste in that facility in fact, did come from places overseas. Mm. And then there's communities of people who live in these places and, and pick through this material by hand to on-sell it and make a living. So they're exposed to the toxicity of the consumption of richer people from yeah. around the world. Yeah. When you experience that firsthand, you've got to ask yourself, you know, who are we to inflict this on other people in other places? So you've been to China a, a few times in recent years and have had the opportunity to see what China is doing firsthand. So what, what are some of the big examples that come to mind? I get the impression that China goes for big scale when they do things. Well, everything about China is large scale. Yeah. Inevitably, because of its geographic size, because of the population and because of the diversity of the place. One of the interesting things we saw on our our study tour to China in 2016 was a waste to energy transfer plant outside of Chongqing, which was quite enormous. So think of a big facility that brings in municipal waste from the city, leaches out all the water from that waste, treats it, and then can use that on agricultural lands in the surrounding area, then burns off the hard waste products from that process through which they run turbines to power a power plant, which then produces enough electricity to power 200,000 homes mm. on a daily basis. And then the hard waste remnants uh, from that burning process are then uh, used for different industrial applications, such as asphalt. You know, think of the amount of urban waste that a place like Chongqing generates. This is a way of taking that waste and rather than just sticking it in landfill, uh, where it generates methane and leaches into the water, being able to treat that and, and reduce the environmental footprint of that waste and generate some stuff that they can make money out of and use at the same time. There's nothing remotely like that in operation in Australia at the moment. Mm, mm. And it takes a fair amount of investment as well, that sort of thing. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of startup capital required for that kind of process and you've got to be able to make money out of the process. So I don't think the economics stack up Mm. Uh, for that to take place here in Australia yet. But this is the kind of technology that's on the shelf now mm. uh, that is something that we can look at and possibly emulate later. And what's the capacity of that? Is it the sort of thing that can handle all the waste in Chongqing or from the surrounding landscape, or is it just a, a pilot program, a test to see if it's viable? Oh, well, this is one of, I think, 12 yeah, right. similar factories around China 
there's scope to roll it out. But just to give you a, an indication of the actual size of the plant, the loading bay where all the waste gets dropped off can accommodate 20 semi-trailers parked next to each other, unloading directly into the main chamber. Mm. So that can handle a, a very large amount of waste at any given time. What about initiatives that are more so driven by the people of China, not necessarily from the government? Yeah, there's a, a lot of evidence of stuff starting to move there. You know, in our two study tours in 2015 and 2016, we found a lot of organic agriculture sites, uh, particularly around Beijing and Shanghai and also down in Yunnan. And these are starting to develop because there's a growing awareness or a growing concern about the safety of food that's being grown in China due to the use of chemicals mm. uh, and genetically modified organisms. So people want to be able to reassert some control over the food that they're eating and, and know that it's safe. China emits close to a third of the world's carbon dioxide emissions. So do the efforts that it's going to constitute its fair share when you look at that global chunk? The Chinese government is committed to carbon mitigation. There's no doubt about that. It's not always obvious that they're doing work in this space just because of the size of the country and the sheer scale of the challenge. However, it is doing more than many other countries. The larger question that surrounds this is, is this enough to divert climate disaster? Is it possible to maintain high rates of economic growth while attempting to reduce greenhouse gas emissions? Mm. So you know, like we've seen in the, the 13th five-year plan, the goal there is to maintain high-level growth while greening the economy. And there's plenty of perspectives on the climate change issue to suggest that actually being able to decarbonise the economy is not going to get it done if we're going to reduce the climate change threat. Can you just give me an impression of what other countries think about China's efforts and as, as part of that? Do other countries think that China is doing enough? I think a good marker of that, if we go back a couple of years to 2015 and the lead up to the Paris Agreement, so you had uh, Xi Jinping and Barack Obama sign an agreement, uh, the US-China Joint Announcement on Climate Change and Clean Energy Cooperation. Now, this laid out the path for a unifying agreement uh, in the Global Climate Change Treaty that would have been unthinkable uh, even a year before that. So China and the US, because they're the two largest economies, they set the signal, they set the trend. And the two largest polluters, yeah. And the two largest polluters, exactly. So they set the trend and set the signal uh, for other countries to follow. So their intervention at that time was critical in allowing the Paris Agreement to get negotiated at that time. Mm. Now, obviously, the US has pulled back from those commitments under the Trump administration, but China's continuing to set the standard here. You know, Xi Jinping has his ecological civilization ideological model, mm -hmm. kind of like the brand for the greening of the economy yeah, that we're yeah. seeing now. And you can imagine in a world where climate change is a big existential issue that that kind of rhetoric, that kind of soft power has some kind of appeal hmm. uh, to other countries. If you couple that with what the Chinese are trying to establish with the Asian Infrastructure Development Bank and the Belt and Road Initiative, those two organisations are ostensibly about facilitating transport and fossil fuel energy uh, networks across Eurasia and beyond. I can envisage that green economy infrastructure is going to increasingly become part of that vision and something uh, where those mechanisms can help facilitate the expansion of, of green economy projects more broadly than just in China. 
So Trump's action of pulling America out of the Paris Agreement has given China a real opportunity that they seem to be exploiting, maybe not directly or even intentionally, probably a little bit intentionally, but you've got, you've got this great capacity for soft power to show that they are the world leaders when it comes to combating climate change, when it comes to doing these big steps and meeting these targets. Well, it's not just an environmental issue. The Paris Agreement is like the signpost. It's the guidestone for how the international economy is going to transform over the coming decades. Mm. And in rejecting that document and that treaty and everything that comes with it, the Trump administration is effectively abdicating the space to play you know, a constructive role in shaping what that international economy turns into. So that leaves China as the leader in that space. They're in pole position to shape how the new green international political economy forms uh, over the next 10 to 20 years. And do you think that's something that they intend to do? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the need to green the economy and to decarbonise the economy is, is obvious mm. from all the climate science. It is happening. The market signals... Uh, in terms of reduction in demand for fossil fuels are becoming obvious. So there's a clear ecological case for moving that way. There's a clear economic case for moving that way. And there's a clear political and social case. Uh, So the Chinese government is riding the wave. Final question, and I save the uh, easiest one for last. When you look at the environment, is what China is doing, is it enough Uh, No, it's not enough. No country's actions right now are enough. But what they're doing is a useful start. Uh, They understand the scale of the problem and they understand, more importantly, the impact on their legitimacy to rule. There's a lesson here for other governments around the world. Once politicians recognise that environmental degradation underpins all other aspects of economy and society and understand that this is an existential issue, then they'll start taking it more seriously. So the Chinese government's actions are a good signpost in that regard. Dr Benjamin Habib, lecturer in politics and international relations at La Trobe University, and you have been listening to Asia Rising. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it in iTunes or SoundCloud, where there are two other episodes looking at Asia and the environment on India and North Korea. You can follow both myself and Ben Habib on Twitter, Ben is at Dr. Benjamin Habib, and I am at Nightlight Guy. In the next episode of Asia Rising, we look at a country where climate change is having a terrible impact, and that's in Indonesia. But until then, I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.